ex-lover Johnny courted me for every hour in the day. He courted me unto such a degree as I haven't a word to say. It's take then off your father's gold and all your mother's money. Steal the key to your father's stable where there's thirty steeds and three. She took then off her father's gold and all her mother's money. She stole the key to her father's stable where there's thirty steeds and three. They mounted on a white milk steed, rode on through the clear silver light of the moon. They rode on to the river banks where there they did get down. It's lie you here, Miss Michaeline, one night along with me. For here I've drowned seven kings' daughters, the eighth one shall be you. So take you off them lovely clothes and leave them on dry land. For they're too fine and costly for to rot on the salt sea sand. Well, if there's time, I'll finish that. <laughs> I'll finish that if there's time later. We'll find out what happens to Miss Michaeline and false lover John. I had the opportunity to learn some English folk song, English folk singing, from a singer called Pete Gregg up in the northeast of England in the 1980s and 90s. And I learned the traditional way, which means you write nothing down, you just listen to your teacher sing, line by line, and you sing it back, and slowly, slowly, the song gets fixed into your head. And then you take the song away, and you keep on singing it over and over again, until it really becomes part of you. And ideally, you develop a completely unique way of singing the song. Now, this process needs quite a lot of time. And of course, what happens is that the song itself begins to change and develop and becomes rather unique to the singer. The rhythm, the pace, the notes, the words, all these things can begin to change. And of course, you must sing in your own accent. That's very important. And you begin to grow into the personality of the characters you're singing about, whether male or female, whatever their background might be. And very sadly, my teacher, Pete, died many years ago. And so I can't go back and check anything about the songs with him. He told me a little bit, but basically we concentrated on learning, so I don't know who wrote any of them, when or where. And this is just one example of music in the folk tradition. Music passed on via oral tradition. And this kind of music and this kind of culture goes back long before we got into the habit of writing things down. And it is a reliable tradition. Now, things don't need to be written down to be reliable, it turns out. Folk music is music by and for the people. Not written for a royal court or for a patron or paid for 
by an elite group. It is considered common property and is often ascribed to Anon. Anon has written more songs than anyone in the history of music. And we should be wise and realize that Anon can refer to a whole series of people, even for an individual song. Today, I want to challenge our assumption that a piece of music, and particularly a piece of worship music, can belong to an individual, and that therefore we can make it copyright. Why else stand up at Catalyst live? Along the way in the history of music, there have been two practical developments that have had a massive effect on the way we all perceive music now. And the first was the appearance of musical notation, which arose originally to be nothing more or less than an aid memoir, and only contained the absolute key features of a piece of music, which was meant to be elaborated upon freely in performance. But musical notation over time has become more and more and more detailed, as if it were possible to record a composer's entire intention on a piece of paper. And this makes a performer a little more of an automaton than someone who's actually expected to compose as they play, just on the basis of somebody else's idea. These days, we even talk about music, uh, meaning a piece of paper upon which music's written. Pass me the music. You know, it doesn't actually sound of anything. It's just a sheet of paper. The second important invention was the ability to capture an individual performance as a recording, which could then be played over and over again, each time identically. Before recording became possible, every performance, even of a single piece of music, would of course be unique in some way and would be expected to be unique. Each piece of music, through continuing usage, truly had a life of its own and continued to change. Now, there is a bit of a danger of feeling disappointed if you go to a live performance and hear a piece you know and love from a recording and it's not played exactly as you had expected, well, we can feel a little bit disappointed about that. So these two inventions, uh, notation and then sound recording, have left us believing that a piece of music is actually a fixed entity that can and should no longer change. And without these two inventions, I think it would be impossible to come to a position of believing that a piece of music can be owned by an individual. Even so, the notion of individual ownership of creative pieces is still a relatively recent one and only held to regionally, particularly perhaps in our very individualistic worldview here in the West. One of the greatest composers of the Western classical tradition, Johann Sebastian Bach, he was composing in the 17th century. He was quite a lowly servant, as most composers were in those days, and he was writing to order. Music, which was needed for church services and other occasions, turning it out every week. His music belonged to his patron. He was on a very tight schedule. 
He was a man of strong Christian faith and Bach prayed before he composed for God's help and famously wrote on every manuscript he produced, Soli Deo Gloria, glory be to God alone. And he found freedom in his composing to order by dedicating his work as a personal act of worship to God. Many other of the great Western composers who began to make the transition to becoming freelance composers were well aware that any amount of raw talent needs to be supplemented with study, practice and time in order to come to maturity. Even Mozart, who's been portrayed to us as a genius who just plucked things out of the air, practice, practice, practice. And he and all who have come since, incidentally, also studied Bach for their foundations. Writing wonderful music has never only been about skill and inspiration, but also very much about learning from others, studying examples and more practice. It was only really with the Romantic period in the 19th century that the idea, the notion of an inspired individual genius who can create much as God creates out of nothing, that that notion began to take hold. And I'd like to show you a painting now, which the team have very kindly provided for today. A painting by Joseph Danhauser called Liszt, Fantasizing at the Piano. Well-known composer, you can see he's gazing into space and the music just comes, just like that, just like X Factor. By this time, this is a development which uh, convinces us that inspiration comes out of nowhere to the individual genius, who then is able to assert ownership of what they have produced. We're very much influenced here in the West by this view still today. No study, no practice, certainly no heritage or influence, but the expectation that a fully formed, mature gift can arrive in an instant, in a unique individual. And if you're interested, brothers and sisters, think about how we come to the spiritual gifts in church life. Spiritual gifts arise usually with an individual. Do our fellowships recognize these gifts and then nurture them and then develop them and then test them and then refine them when they are presented or do we just swallow them whole as they appear? That's something to talk about on another occasion. So musical history, notation and recording and then a development to the notion of an individual who is inspired. But if we wanted to write a song today, if you or I wanted to write a song, what different elements might feed into that process? Well, first of all, our context is vital in determining what we might write. Our influences, and particularly our cultural influence, our heart language, the history we've been taught and experienced, and our social upbringing, all this will guide and truly will limit what we are likely to produce. And secondly, relationships, key people in our lives and our families, and particularly our teachers, and the examples they choose for us to study. 
and take in. In some cultures, the notion of teachers is so important that if I wanted to recommend myself to you, I'd need to give a litany of my teachers and their teachers and their teachers and their teachers in order for you to receive me. So much more important than who I am, those who have taught me. Do you know the provenance of what you've learned? There is a, a, a musical apocryphal story, perhaps it's true, uh, that in some cases, if you want to learn a particular Eastern musical instrument, you have to make tea for your teacher for a year before you're allowed to pick it up. Quite right. Quite right. Why would you want to charge straight into it? Test your character. Test your patience if you want to be a good musician. And then, of course, training and study, the theoretical foundations we lay and the influences that build upon those are so important. The greatest jazz musicians, the improvisers among us will say, learn the rules before you want to bend them or break them. Set your foundations carefully. It has been said that all of us stand on the shoulders of giants, building on the great things of the past that have gone before us as Newton well understood. Imagine a family on a rainy afternoon, the whole family's worked together to produce a very difficult jigsaw, and it's been hard work, hours have gone into this. And then the youngest and smallest member of the family comes breezing in and picks up the very last piece and places it into the remaining gap. This is how it works. It's heritage, it's hard work, it's good foundations. But we may go away feeling that we completed the work alone. As well as social and cultural and personal influences then, here we are, we're people of faith. What about our notions of inspiration and help from God in our creative activity? We know the stories of Bezalel and Aholiab. They were first chosen, then inspired, and then gifted and skilled by God through the work of the Holy Spirit in order that they could then serve in their turn in creative worship. Will we therefore claim that a worship song we've written is all our own work? Does the Holy Spirit play a role in that? Would you give the Holy Spirit co-authorship in your copyright assignation? And who gets the royalties? It is in the more communal and relational cultures that there is still generally often an assumption that an individual cannot produce anything alone, but rather is one who assembles the sum of many parts of which their contribution is only the last and the least. And we must emphasize here at this point our recognition that the value and contribution of the individual in Western thinking has its roots right in the gospel. The individual matters in the gospel. Christ died for me, not only for all of us. But we have taken this way of thinking to its logical extreme now, so that we deify the individual and the importance of the individual's contribution at the cost of the community. An individual may well draw elements together to produce a new song, although few songs are technically very original. Component, melodic, harmonic, rhythmic patterns are formulaic in music. And these formulas have been used many times before somewhere, at least all the ones that sound nice. 
and since the advent of 12-tone music in the 20th century, all the ones that don't sound nice as well. You may have heard of some of the plagiarism cases in the pop music world, uh, bands suing each other for stealing their melodies. Uh, this is exceedingly difficult to prove because of the nature of music. These formulas are used time and again. Anyone ever heard the Ukulele Orchestra of Great Britain? Listen to them if you get the chance. Absolutely fabulous band. But they have a trick of singing seven or eight really well-known pop songs simultaneously. They're fantastic. You can hear that. And uh, the reason it can be done is because they all have exactly the same melodic harmonic foundations. The songs sound different, but there's very little original about them. To misquote Eric Morecambe, who told Andre Previn that he was playing all the right notes, but not necessarily in the right order. Now we're playing all the same notes in exactly the same order. And it is more ephemeral aspects of the spirit of the age connected with any new song that makes it seem original when we hear it. Things like the context, the particular instruments, words that are used for lyrics, light, dance, costumes, these things make things seem new. But somebody once said there is nothing new under the sun. And if you're a devotee of modern worship, perhaps in your better moments, you'd be able to agree with me that there's not much about it that's very novel. In fact, a lot of our worship songs are very formulaic. And there is some good news here because novelty is not the be-all and end-all in worship music. It is the experience of any song within a worship setting with the help of the Holy Spirit that helps us to experience the presence of God in a way that moves and transforms us. Songs are nothing more than tools for this and have no intrinsic power of their own. In fact, more relational societies than ours could well find the notion of owning a song by an individual unrealistic and even arrogant. Property is theft. Everything good we have is a gift from God by his grace. This is the opposite of the I did it my way culture that we live in. And so friends, don't be surprised and try not to be angry when copyright is broken in contexts where cultures believe it's unthinkable for a person to own a song. There are ethical questions on both sides of this coin. Yes, a worker deserves his or her pay, but there are plenty of ways to make money out of music without having to do it in the context of worship. Put on a concert, sell your CDs. They're obsolete now, aren't they? Downloads, isn't it? Yeah, write a book, publish your music. But what about making money out of songs used in worship? Uh, look at the model of pastoral ministry, for example. Pay by the sermon, pay by the prayer, pay by the pastoral encounter. Thank God it's not generally, not generally done that way. But the situation we have now in worship, where we are copywriting individual songs which are intended for use in the gathering of God's people, 
that leads us into some serious difficulties, I, I think. And the first of these is the whole notion of selling worship. Worship songs become commodities in an economically driven and very unjust society. Worship, along with other aspects of Western church life, is in danger of becoming compromised by materialism. It becomes a commercial venture instead of a free will offering with no strings attached. The opposite, in principle, of a sacrifice of praise. And we believe it proper and ethical to pay up before a song can be sung in worship. And we want to be paid before it can be translated into another language. And we begin to ask churches in other cultures, some of whom have very few material resources, to pay before singing or translating our songs. And we are making our songs seem more desirable by asking people to pay for them. In some cases, we are selling songs out of Western church cultures that are struggling seriously to churches elsewhere that are experiencing huge movements of the Holy Spirit or which are going through persecution or suffering in contexts completely different to those our songs come from. Technology-rich cultures ask poorer ones to pay up for the means as well as the content of song acquisition. And in doing this, we've created a red tape nightmare of recording and reporting song use in our own churches. We've created licenses to worship instead of the freedom to do so. Second problem, limiting worship. We are intentionally limiting the usage of worship songs to fulfill a set of rules. And in doing that, we prevent individual songs from continuing to change and develop through usage with the help of the Holy Spirit. In our way of doing things now, a song is published, it becomes fixed before it has been widely sung in public worship. Where is the contribution of the gathered body of Christ, fellow Baptists? We have long agreed that the content of the gospel should not change, but the manner of communication should be contextualized. We translate scripture with dynamic equivalence, huge freedom in bringing across the meaning in the choice of words. But we can't do the same with songs. You may have been part of debates about well-known worship songs where we may not feel comfortable about an aspect of the theology contained in a particular song. Don't mention the grammar, that's a whole other matter. <laughs> and in some cases, even just a single word in a song that causes us problems. And we are not allowed to change it. We have a wrestle with our conscience about this. Now, where is the wisdom of God operating in that situation? And so alongside wanting to uphold artistic integrity, where is the space for the contribution of the people in worship? For centuries, worship music has been reserved for choirs or professional soloists. And it was the translation of scripture from Latin into German, which provided Bach with a timely and revolutionary opportunity to begin to write 
hymns, songs for the gathered people of God to sing together rather than solos or choir pieces. This was a hinge moment in church history and practice and a key outcome of the Reformation. Heart language worship for the whole group was at the forefront of the Protestant movement. And shouldn't worship in Baptist churches stand in this folk tradition rather than the classical one? We hope that in singing and playing music day by day, as well as in prayer and preaching, to discern the wisdom of God together, to hear his voice and then to respond. And so in finishing today, I acknowledge that we are rather stuck with a system now of copyright and licensing, which is very well established. But can we continue to reflect and consider the ethics of copywriting individual worship materials? Is the church influencing society or is it the other way round? While making sure that individual contributions are properly acknowledged and supported, how can we secure continuing freedom in our choice and use of worship materials which can themselves continue to change and develop through worship together and in the spirit? Now, where did we leave Miss Michaeline and false lover John on the riverbank there with a threat in the air? It's turn you round, false John, she said, and view the green leaves on the tree. For I'll never agree that any man my naked body shall see. False lover Johnny turned him round to view the green leaves on the tree. She clasped her arms around his body and flung him into the sea. <laughs> She mounted on a white milk steed, rode on through the clear silver light of the moon. She rode until the castle gates, where there she did get down. She put the steed into the stable, the money in where it had laid. And there was not a lord in the castle knew that Miss Michaeline was away.